so for the past, really, four weeks, we've been journeying. This is going to drive me insane. I'm going to slide over here. Um, so for the past four weeks, we've been journeying through John chapter 5. And so if you remember, John chapter 5 begins with Jesus healing a man who was an invalid for 38 years, right? So a long period of time, this man has been disabled of some sort, an invalid. And Jesus comes. He does so. He heals him by simply speaking. He tells this man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And then what happens? This, this is where you cue in. He, he tells the man, get up and walk. What happens after he walks? He got up and walked. Very good, Thomas. Uh, Thomas gets extra credit. So, yeah, uh, immediately this man gets up and walks. Uh, he gets up, takes up his bed, and begins to walk. And so this is an unbelievably miraculous moment in time. This man has been hurt, invalid for 38 years. Jesus speaks. He's healed. Um, but this miraculous moment is quickly overshadowed by the storms of religiosity, right? So verse 9 tells us that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And so the man is carrying his mat that was designed for rest on the day of rest. So you kind of see this irony taking place here, which according not to the scriptures, but according to the religious leaders' um, traditions was a big no-no, right? This was frowned upon. And so, for the sake of their interpretation of the law, it seems like, as we're journeying through this passage, that the religious leaders would have preferred this man to, to stay paralyzed than to get up, experience healing, and begin to walk. And so, the fact that Jesus healed this man, the fact that he worked on the Sabbath, eventually led to the Jews persecuting him and seeking to kill him. And in the face of this persecution we see Jesus give one of the clearest presentations of who he is, I think, in all of the Gospel of John. John chapter 5 is truly remarkable. It's so rich, it's so dense, packed full of so many um, miraculous theological statements made by Jesus. And so Jesus tells us, as we've seen through this journeying, slow progression through chapter 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. Uh, he is the eternal ruler over all, God and flesh, who will judge all people. And we see that he is the only one who can bring the dead to life. That's true both physically and spiritually. So he is the only one that eternal life is found in. And so Jesus, in response to the Pharisees or in response to the religious leaders, he can work on the Sabbath, he can heal on the Sabbath, because he is the Lord over all things. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so last week, we addressed the question of how do we know that these claims made by Jesus is true, right? So because we've been journeying through this so slow, I think each week you could be faced with the temptation of, yeah, but how do we know that the claims that Jesus has made is true? How do we know that this is reliable? And we learn that in order for something to be true, you need witnesses. And so a witness is essential in establishing any claim to be factual, right? So three different Old Testament passages tell us that in order for a claim for someone against someone to stick, you need to have witnesses present. So if I last night said, Thomas broke into my house, he punched me, beat me up, and stole all of my TVs, 
and there were no witnesses, then that claim can't be accepted as factual. But if my door's busted into and the surveillance camera shows Thomas walking in, my face is bruised and bloody, his knuckles are uh, messed up, and all of my TVs are gone, then you can begin to say, okay, this is a reliable, factual claim. But my face doesn't look uh, bloody, his knuckles are fine, um, pearly white knuckles. So the, you would say, okay, no, this is not a reliable claim. And so what we're beginning to see is a witness is essential in establishing any claim to be factual. So take that concept and apply it to Jesus here. How do we know that the claims that he is making are true? Well, in our passage last week, Jesus begins to give us witnesses to validate the claims that he has been making. We saw three to five different witnesses that bear witness to and support the claims that he's been making. So we know that Jesus' claims are true and reliable because of the proof that he gives us in last week's passage. Anyone can make a claim to be the Messiah, but there has to be some type of evidence to support those claims being made. And the supporting evidence that validates Jesus' claims in John 5 are unbelievably rich and very much reliable. So you, I think you would be a fool to reject the evidence that we see in John chapter 5 supporting the claims that Jesus has made in John chapter 5. So how do we know that Jesus it really is who he says he is? How do we know that he's the eternal Lord over all, God in flesh? How do we know that he is the only one who possesses hope for eternal life? How do we know these things? We know these things because John the Baptist bore witness about him. We know these things because Jesus' works bore witness about him. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 came to Jesus at night saying, Hey, I and all of the other religious leaders know something's up with you because no man can do the things that you're doing. We know that God has to be with you. So Jesus' works bear witness to him. God the Father bore witness to him. The scriptures, Moses, bear witness to this truth. And so contrary to what many people may believe, there is an abundance of evidence supporting Jesus being the only way to eternal life. The, the supporting evidence is rich. And so the witnesses that we saw last week should give us confidence that what we believe about Jesus is true and reliable. So when you personally are faced with the temptation to doubt or question the object of your faith, Jesus, run back to this passage. Run back to John chapter 5. The evidence is clear. Jesus is our only hope, and it's true. There's a plurality of witnesses. Or in your evangelism, when you're having conversations with someone else about Jesus, and they're questioning the reliability of these statements, use John chapter 5. Run to this passage. The evidence is there. There is a long line of witnesses who, at the top of their lungs, shout the message that Jesus is the eternal ruler over all who possesses the only hope for eternal life. So there's an unbelievable amount of evidence that supports the claims made by Jesus in John 5. We looked at those evidences in um, greater detail last week. So in our passage today, however, Jesus begins to reverse the script. 
And so at the flip of a switch, he goes from being the defendant to the prosecutor. So where the religious leaders have approached him, hey, give us proof to these claims that you're making, and Jesus is in a sense defending himself, giving these witnesses to defend himself. Jesus transitions from the defensive, from giving defensive evidence for who he is to now issuing an offensive charge against the religious leaders. The witnesses that Jesus provides ultimately condemn and accuse his listeners. So if Jesus really is one with the Father, as we saw in his claims earlier, then the Jews are reject, their rejection of Jesus is ultimately a rejection of the Father, a rejection of God. You can't reject Jesus and still love God and worship God. Um, they go hand in hand. If Jesus really is the only source of eternal life, then the Jews' rejection of him is a rejection of the only hope for salvation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see Israel commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. And so simply put, Deuteronomy chapter 6 commands, calls Israel to love God with everything that they have. But what we see in John chapter 5 now is that Israel, because they've begun to reject Jesus, their rejection of Jesus reveals a lack of love for God which ultimately condemns them as guilty before God. They were a people who elevated the scriptures, who elevated the law, and did so by searching it and striving to keep it. But in doing so, they've lost sight of the greatest commandment, which is to love God with everything they have. So today we're going to see a major shift in language, where Jesus goes from being the defendant to a prosecutor. The witnesses that we saw last week condemn and accuse those who reject Jesus. So let's go ahead and dive into our passage. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. It says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, or there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So going back to verse 39, we first see Jesus expounding on the witness of the scriptures, right? This, this kind of last witness that bears uh, witness on Jesus. And then we see how the Jews have overlooked the message that the scriptures are proclaiming. He says to the Jews, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so what we're seeing here is the Jews have brought their own agenda to the scriptures. They've brought their own agenda to God's word. And as we see, they thought 
that eternal life is found in the scriptures. And that's an interesting statement that kind of left me scratching my head at first glance, right? So I, I began to ask the question, well, isn't scripture, isn't eternal life found in scripture, right? And so I wrestled through that. Is it not? Is it? And so at first glance, it seems like Jesus is diminishing the importance of scripture, but that's not the case at all. Scripture is essential to eternal life because in it we hear about the one that eternal life is found in. So the New Testament uh, background, the New Testament wouldn't have been around during this time, right? Because Jesus is alive, talking. New Testament is pointing backwards to Jesus. So the scriptures that he would have been referring to here would have been what we know as the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament scriptures are therefore pointing to the coming of the Messiah who will save his people through his life, death, resurrection, and then ascension. So the Jews, however, thought that knowing, possessing, and observing the scriptures led to life. So where the scriptures are intended to point to Jesus, they are now thinking, okay, if I have the scriptures, if I know the scriptures, if I observe them, then I have eternal life. But that's not what scripture is intended to be uh, for. They would have thought that eternal life is found in the possession of scriptures, in the memorization of it, and in the living out of the scriptures. And so Jesus is attacked, attacking that mentality. And so studying the Bible is essential but the end goal of studying the Bible isn't simply to gain an understanding, an intellectual understanding, nor is the study of the Bible and memorization of the Bible simply something that we do in order to check off um, our religious checklist in order to earn God's favor. The study of the Bible ought to, the purpose of it is to result in genuine faith in Jesus which is then followed by obedience and transformation. And so I think that we can fall into a similar mentality as the religious leaders in our own day-to-day -day life, especially living in this Bible belt of America, right? This, this area that's so saturated with Christianity. Um, we can fall into the mentality that having a Bible in every room of our house um, equals some type of greater uh, spirituality um, because we think that it makes us look more religious or more morally upright um, because we think that God is somehow pleased with the, the simple possession of God's word. Or in living in the Bible Belt of America, we can fall into the trap of reading the Bible every single day because we feel like it's necessary for us to be in right standing with God. If I don't read my Bible, then God's not pleased with me. And so in doing either one of these two things, we miss the main point of the scriptures, which is to inspire genuine faith in Jesus, followed by action and transformation. So that's key. Using the Bible as a means to earn eternal life is manipulation and idolatry, and it will profit you none. And so we don't approach God's word in prideful arrogance. Rather, we approach it in humble submission. Scripture is not an end in itself. Similar to John the Baptist, its purpose is to point us to, direct our attention to 
Jesus' life, uh, Jesus Christ as our hope for eternal life. So knowing, possessing, and observing the scriptures does not lead to eternal life. Rather, belief in, submission to, faith in the one that the scriptures point to leads to eternal life. Now, the discipline, again, of studying the Bible is necessary. It's foundational to the Christian faith. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you see there's great benefit in God's word. So Jesus is not diminishing the scriptures here. He's correcting this um, false interpretation or this false understanding of scripture. But so as we approach scripture, we need to ask the question of what is our motive and what is the posture of our heart in approaching scripture. For example, why do you feel guilty for not reading the Bible in the morning time? Or why do you feel guilty if you, you skip your Bible study? Is it because you're afraid that God's now mad at you? And, and that he has somehow revoked your rights to eternal life because you are not studying the Bible as you should? Or you're afraid that eternal life rests on the shoulders of your Bible reading? Or do you pridefully think that you are more righteous than the people around you because you do have a good discipline of Bible study? Or are you humbly and prayerfully coming to God's word with a genuine desire to be instructed and corrected and taught about our only hope in Jesus? If scripture is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and training, then that means that we desperately lack something and we desperately need help from the, ones, from the one that Scripture points to. So we don't approach Scripture trying to fix ourselves. We approach Scripture humbly, allowing God's Word to speak to us and correct us. That's opposite of what we see the religious leaders doing here. So look back at verse 39. The Jews searched the scriptures because they thought that in them they could have eternal life. So this tells me that the, the religious leaders had a concern for eternal life. This was a desire of theirs. But they've unfortunately refused to acknowledge their need for a Savior. They thought that salvation was something that they could earn through their observance of scriptures. And consequently, they have refused to come to the one that scriptures point to. So they've ironically rejected the message of the very thing that they've given their life to, right? It's crazy. As verse 40 says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They have surprisingly refused to come to the one that scriptures bear witness about. Now, last week, our homework was to go to the Old Testament and find passages that bear witness to Jesus and discuss those in our community groups. So our community groups either didn't meet or had a baby shower or had their first meeting or maybe Monday nights. Did y'all meet? Yeah, okay. So none of our groups did this, so we're going to take that homework and plug it into this week's task, right? So our homework for this week is to discuss different Old Testament passages that bear witness to Jesus, Right? So in your day-to-day -day study, right, write down, go through the Old Testament, 
Read through it. Find passages that point to Jesus. What is Jesus talking about here? How do the scriptures bear witness to Jesus? In Luke 24, Jesus appears to two of his disciples and explain to them what the scriptures say about him. Luke 24, 27, jot this down, says, In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in all the scriptures, Jesus is teaching his disciples how they are concerning themselves. So all of the Old Testament uh, points to Jesus. So this is encouraging as parents, as we're teaching our kids about Jesus, and we're t- or as we're teaching them old stories in the Bible, we get to tell them stories that point to Jesus. This is an opportunity to evangelize to our kids. As you're sitting next to them in bed, telling them a story about uh, David killing Goliath, Jesus defeated our enemies, right? Story after story, we can relate that to what Christ has done for us. The Old Testament is littered with prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. Some speak to his virgin birth. Other prophecies speak to the location of his birth. Others speak to his ministry. Many speak to his death and resurrection. But not only that, there's also different types of people and events and institutions in the Old Testament that speak to the coming of this Messiah. So Moses setting God's people free from slavery in Egypt points to a greater deliverer uh, who will set his people free from the bondage of sin and death. David, Solomon, all of these great kings point to a greater, more faithful king who will reign in peace and glory forever. The feast of the Lord, so Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, trumpets, day of atonement, tabernacles, all of these feasts are a foreshadow pointing to Jesus and Jesus being the fulfillment of all of those. And so this week, I want us to see this in our community groups, in our discussions Jot these things down. Talk about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. How is Jesus the fulfillment of these? So a run-on sentence. It should be on the screen if the slides are working. Um, A proper understanding of the Old Testament is knowing that it points forward to Jesus, particularly his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and the advancement of God's blessing in Christ to all of the nations. So a proper understanding of the Old Testament sees that they point to Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling us here. So with all of this evidence that we see from all of these witnesses, John the Baptist, Jesus' works, the Father, Scripture, um, Jesus' audience still refuses to come to Jesus in belief and faith. They still refuse to come to him in order to have life. All of the evidence on the table, they push it off and they brush it aside and say, I'm good. So last week in speaking about John the Baptist, Jesus told us that he doesn't accept or need human testimony. That was an interesting claim. Jesus mentioned, Jesus didn't mention John the Baptist in order to uh, have some type of personal gain to his ministry. Rather, he did so for the eternal benefit of his hearers. And so, remember, if the Father is Jesus' witness, then what does Jesus profit from John the Baptist? He, He profits nothing. Again, he did this for the eternal benefit of his hearers. Well, similarly, 
Jesus now tells us in verse 41 that he doesn't receive glory or praise from men. Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. It's a strange verse, right? I do not receive glory from people. We just went through the five solas. What was the last one? Glory of God alone, right? So what, what is Jesus saying here? Um, every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Soli Dei Gloria, we're saved to the glory of God alone. Ephesians 1 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance so that we who are uh, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then it goes on to say, You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His, Jesus' glory. So what is Jesus saying here? It's clearly God's plan from the beginning for Jesus to be exalted and glorified by man. So what is Jesus doing here? I do not receive the glory from people. Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is shining light on both his motives and the expectations of the religious leaders here. A desire for self-glory will oftentimes lead you to say and do things that are not true. So Jesus could have easily used flattery and made claims that coincide with the religious leaders' expectations and thoughts about the scriptures, um, which would have led to the religious leaders drooling over him, right? He could have easily used flattery to try to gain their glory. He could have done that easy. You, you'll see later on that many um, false messiahs come and uh, they accept their testimony. Microphone is working. Look at there. Um, so Jesus is not trying to wow his audience in this way in order to receive glory. His entire commitment is to please the Father and then receive the glory and honor that only the Father can give. And so we know that Jesus is not seeking to obtain the glory of man through flattery because of what he says next in verse 42. He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So where they don't know Jesus... Jesus knows them. He knows all people, as we see in chapter 2, verse 25, and needs no one to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. So not only can Jesus see their actions visibly, but he sees and knows every thought that they've ever taken. He knows what is in man. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And the same is true today. So do not let your ability to hide your actions and your thoughts from man lead you to think that you can hide your thoughts and actions from God. He knows all and sees all. There is never a thought or action that goes unnoticed by the all-seeing and all-knowing God. What is done in the dark will eventually come to light. It will eventually come to light. The eternal ruler over all will not blindly miss a single impure thought or action. He sees all. He knows the heart of man. And so in our passage today, Jesus knows that they do not have the love of God within them. In other words, he knows that they do not love God. But how does he know this? He knows this because of their lack, uh, because of, their lack of love for God is clearly displayed through their rejection of Jesus, the one that scriptures bear witness about. It's kind of uh, circular here. In verses 43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
So their rejection of Jesus is a direct offense against God because he comes in the Father's name. So the Jews were waiting for the coming Messiah, and we saw that in their interaction with John the Baptist, we saw that in the, uh, their interaction with John the Baptist back in John chapter 1, they asked John, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, 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 I'm not. I'm the one who is the forerunner, uh, the one who points to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And so they were waiting for the Messiah to come, um, but they were doing so on their own terms. They were waiting for him to come on their own terms, doing what they wanted him to do. And so Jesus said, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And so it was believed that at this time there were many false messiahs who came in their own name. So where Jesus had come with multiple witnesses bearing witness about him, with clear supporting evidence, the religious leaders still refused and still rejected him, still refused to believe in him. But not only that, as we see later on, they've accepted imposters on the basis of no evidence. They're blinded here. They were open to messianic claims as long as the one making the claim sought to exalt his own name on their terms. So they're willing to trust the lone testimony of imposters because their message aligned with what they wanted to hear. They're bringing their own agenda to God's word. Jesus then asked, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the Father? This is probably the most terrifying verse in all of John chapter 5, in my opinion. The religious leaders here, the, the main stumbling block for belief in Jesus was not a lack of evidence. It was their love for self-glory. We oftentimes believe that we can suppress truth in, attempt to, uh, in attempts to live up, uh, lift up and glorify ourselves. So how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The religious leaders were more concerned with the approval of man than they were for the approval of God. And so their own glory eclipsed the glory of God. The glory of the infinite holy God stands before them in Jesus, but they cannot see it because their glory has eclipsed him, covered him. And so listen, seeking the glory of man is a blinding endeavor. It's dangerous. The praise of man is a drug that will grab a hold of you and take you down a path of destruction. The high that comes from this, uh, from the praise of man, will leave you come, wanting to come back from more, and it will lead you to your demise. The Jews literally rejected eternal life in Jesus because of their love for self-glory. And so before you can ever believe the good news of Jesus, you must first understand the bad news of Ryan, the bad news of you. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Jesus has been telling us, our only hope for eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Our hope for eternal life is not found in ourselves, and it's not found in another Messiah. It's found in Jesus alone. So therefore, you have two options here. You can stay in the dark, or you can come to the light. You can hide in the darkness by chasing after self-glory and suppressing, avoiding, and justifying your sins. 
Or you can abandon self-glory, confess your need for forgiveness of those sins, uh, and come to Jesus, cling to Him as your only hope for eternal life. Belief in Jesus is the opposite of self-glory. It's the proclamation that everything that you've built and given your life to is empty, meaningless, and hopeless, and it will profit you none in regards to eternal life. It is the proclamation that you need help, that you are unable to fix your current situation. Belief in Jesus is the proclamation that you need Jesus. And so if you seek to hide and keep your sin in the dark, then you will never come to Jesus. And you will never come to Jesus. And if you never come to Jesus, then you will never have eternal life. Jesus' listeners rejected Jesus because of their love for self-glory. And that's terrifying for us. They sacrificed their love of God for the approval of man. And so we have to ask the question, which is true of you? Have you, like the religious leaders here, rejected belief in Jesus because of your love for self-glory? Have you never truly come to him because you're still trying to to keep up this facade? You're still trying to keep up this um, glorious-looking false image of yourself? Or have you forsaken self-glory, come to the light, and confessed your need for a Savior, confessed your need for Jesus through belief in Him, which is the true of you. And then let's take that a step further. Just because you've placed your faith in Jesus, made that confession, uh, placed your belief in Jesus, that doesn't mean that you are now exempt from loving the glory of man. Right? I think if you were to evaluate your heart in life, you will quickly see how often your heart gravitates towards the love of man. And that's another thing I would like for us to discuss this week in community groups. So community group leaders, you have two questions this week already um, prescribed for you. You're welcome. Question is, in what areas do you find yourself seeking the glory of man over the glory of God? What areas do you, Christians, find yourself seeking the glory of man over the glory of God? Jesus then follows this condemning question uh, of how can you believe when you receive the glory of God for, or where you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. He, he follows that question up with the statement, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So Jesus doesn't have to accuse the religious leaders here. He doesn't have to accuse them because... The law that was given to Israel by God through Moses stands against them as accusers. The very thing that they're giving their life to and searching in order to have eternal life, the very thing that they're placing their hope in is shaking their fingers saying, no, 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 you're guilty. And so how does it stand against them as an accuser? Well, first and foremost, it stands against them as an accuser because they're guilty of not keeping the law. We see a small example of their inability to keep the law and their rejection of the testimony of the witnesses and their acceptance of the testimonies uh, or the claims to be a Messiah without witnesses. The law was ultimately intended to show us God's standard and then reveal our corrupt hearts, and it was then intended to show us our inability to keep the law. 
which should then point us to the only one who keeps the law perfectly, and that's Jesus, the fulfillment of it. Who was tempted? Jesus, the one who was tempted in every way that we were, yet remained without sin. So Jesus here is saying that the law that we're seeking to uphold is condemning or accusing them. You have rejected the truth. And he concludes here, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe his words? So the very one that they've placed their faith or their hope in is accusing them because the very one that they've placed their hope in wrote things like this in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. So you, you see Moses pointing to someone greater. There's, a, there's one coming who's going to be far greater than me, and he's the one you should be listening to. But the, the religious leaders are closing their ears, not listening to this claim, and looking back to Moses rather than Jesus. Philip, in John chapter 145, he says this. He runs to his brother Nathaniel and says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. So Jesus concludes this exchange with the religious leaders with a blend of a hopeful promise and a stern warning. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his, uh, his Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? All they had to do was believe Moses, and they would quickly see that Christ crucified has always been God's plan to redeem sinners. Jesus has always been God's plan for eternal life. Jesus has given an abundance of evidence, yet the religious leaders have rejected this, and as a result, they all stand condemned before God. Jesus does not need us to glorify him, his glory um, he is glorious whether we worship him or not. But he invites sinners like us to abandon the hopelessness of self-glory in order to find true life in him. So if I could condense Jesus' words in John 5, all of John 5, into one rather lengthy statement, it would be this. Jesus is the Son of God who is one with the Father the eternal Lord over all, the one who possesses the power to give life and take away life, the one who possesses the power and authority to judge all of humanity, and the one and only way to experience eternal life. So if that is true, if Jesus has been constantly reiterating to us the point that eternal life cannot be found in anything other than himself, and now we see that self-glory is the very thing that stands in the way of the religious leaders coming to Jesus for life, then we must rightfully conclude that living for the glory of self always leads to death. It will not lead to joy. So where our heart tells us, hey, live for your glory. Seek to elevate yourself and you will truly experience life. Where our hearts feed us that lie, it's actually the opposite. It will only lead to um, whatever the opposite of joy is. What would the opposite of joy? It would lead to despair, yeah, hopelessness. It would lead to 
um, death. And so does the thought of your sin and brokenness being exposed keep you from coming to Jesus? And if it does, I plead to you, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. You cannot be a Christian without abandoning your love for self-glory. So come to Jesus so that you can experience true forgiveness, true freedom, and true peace. And listen, I think um, application for us as a church plan as we begin to move forward, self-glory will seek to attack and devour a church plant faster than anything else, right? So it will eat away at marriages. It will eat away at relationships. When you elevate yourself, then people are going to wrong you often, right? When, when you are the chief end of your life, then when somebody doesn't live up to your expectations, then you begin to experience bitterness and frustration, and that's when you begin to see division and discord, and that will eat away Harbor Community Church faster than anything else will. So we desperately need the gospel. This is why we constantly preach the gospel. Jesus atones for our sins through his death on the cross. He conquered sin and death through his resurrection, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. And we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, called to live a life that imitates God. We are called to be imitators of God. And so next week marks the official beginning of Harbor Community Church. So I want us to close in reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 through 5, verse 2. It says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus displays to us true humility and true servitude, true service. And so may we be imitators of that. May we be imitators of Christ in our marriages, in our community groups, in the way that we serve each and every day. And may the Lord protect us from the temptation to live for the glory of man. May we be supremely happy in glorifying Christ in all that we do. And that's our goal as Harbor Community Church. So let's pray, and then we will transition into uh, shutting down and beginning to clean and eat and fellowship. So, Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, I, I pray for unity with us as a church. Holy Spirit, continue to convict me of areas that I am um, a lover of self, where my love for Ryan exceeds my love for Jesus. Holy Spirit, continue to just shake up my heart and um, change me. God, I pray that same prayer for us as a church. God, I pray that we will find great joy in glorifying you. God, I pray for opportunities to share our faith daily. Holy Spirit, use us, Lord. Use us. 
convict us. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who has rejected you, who has put on a facade, who's clothed themselves with religiosity, um, who can quote the Bible with the rest of them. But God, if they're honest, they don't know you and they've rejected true belief in you. God, if there's anyone in here today that that is the case, God, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. God, we pray for salvations. God, we pray that there will be men and women in this area that come to know you through the labor of your saints here. And God, we pray that you will be glorified. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so um, I guess a couple housekeeping things. So we will be putting all these chairs back in the closet. There should be a checklist somewhere around here that gives us information on where everything should go. We can leave the pipes and drapes up. So, okay, let me back up. If anyone's going to be staying to paint and decorate the kids' room, um, we have food. I'm sure we'll eat first. Is that the plan? Um, so we'll eat. Yeah, we'll eat. I'm putting together a plan on the fly. I should have done this beforehand. Um, we'll shut everything down in here. Then we'll eat. Um, we'll need a couple of uh, blokes to cut down these pipes. So these PVC pipes, we're going to cut shorter so that way the drapes touch the ground and then we're going to spray paint the pipes black so that way we don't have the stark contrast of black um, drapes and white pipes um, and then we're going to decorate the kids decorate and cl clean the kids room so after we shut everything down we'll eat and then we'll um, tackle these tasks all right <laughs> lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you